Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. I have been craving human contact. I was doing pretty well in the beginning of COVID, and now I really, really want to go to the largest human gathering possible. (laughs) I'm not going to, because I do not want to join a super spreader event, but I really (laughs) would love to go to like, I don't know, a concert or I don't know, anything that has large amounts of people that I can see face to face and possibly reach out and touch in some real form. Uh, So thanks for coming. I love spending the evenings with you. It's great to see y'all. I am. I can't wait for us to be able to meditate in person. Oh my gosh. <sighs> so before we get into the wandering mind, um, I put the link for the fall retreat up in the chat box. You can always get that kind of stuff also at WednesdayWakeUp.com, of course. But I just thought I'd put the direct link up there. I, uh, if you haven't seen the flyer for it, the fall retreat is going to be on Anicca. It is called Anicca, Thriving in the Flow of Change, and this was inspired by the successes and struggles I had with all of the change from COVID. And I realized as I was not only trying to find my own way through all of the craziness of the last year and a half, uh, but coaching others through it, you know, using the Dharma. And I realized that I feel like we could all use a full day of exploring the Buddha's idea of Anicca how we use the fact of change in the world, on the outside, and in the hearts and minds on the inside, how we use this as a tool for liberation. How do we figure out how to abandon our outdated habits that prevent us from managing change well, or cause us to struggle with initiating change when we need to change, and how we can use this. And we have so many tools in the Dharma for this kind of stuff, but we don't often really take a deep dive. So I am in the process of creating a series of frameworks for you around how to get in touch with past karma around change, how to live into a future where we feel much more confident when change arises and how we can initiate change more skillfully with openness and compassion. I'm pretty excited about it. I'm already learning a ton just trying to reflect on how to present it, the materials. Um, so it's going to be great. It's going to be a full day, nine to four, and it's going to be a nice little fusion between uh, retreat and workshop. There's going to be a little bit more breakout group, a lot more reflection time uh, that we'll be doing because I want people to be able to take the frameworks and really apply them and But of course, we'll be doing (laughs) plenty of meditation will be had, of course. Um, So anyway, that is up on the website. Uh, Please check it out. So um, last week, based on some of the questions um, we had after our breakout groups, I made a list of things that people were struggling with or stuff that came up. And Wandering Mind, of course, came up. And I couldn't remember the last time I actually 
talked about this, which is weird because it's the wandering mind, which is like more prominent than anything else we experience in meditation. And for the life of me, I couldn't find notes or a Dharma talk or anything on it. So I wanted to just um, bring some perspective to the wandering mind based on last week's discussion, which I think can be helpful. And then um, in a couple weeks, because next week we'll have Doyle, I'm going to be doing some guided meditations around how to actually work with the wandering mind in real time. So we'll do some extended meditations and actually do some visualization work and stuff around the wandering mind. But I wanted to give you some background on this troubling predicament of human consciousness. And basically what it amounts to is that the mind likes to think about stuff, right? The mind likes to imagine, it likes to create, it likes to innovate, it likes to reminisce. What it doesn't like to do is sit still in case you haven't noticed. And this is a, a thing that as meditators, we have to come to terms with the nature of the wandering mind, that our mind likes to engage and craves mental stimulation, craves activity, and will do almost anything to trick us into giving it more stimulation rather than just being in the present moment and being with the breath. So this is something all meditators eventually have to get comfortable with. We have to befriend this process in order to really mature in practice. Because as long as we're going to war with the mind, there's always new layers of suffering being created. New layers of stress, new layers of contracted heart, new layers of aversion. And so the challenge of this is that the wandering mind is so pervasive that we see it as like this Sisyphus, right? Pushing the rock up the hill, like we'll never get away from the wandering mind. But actually there are ways to practice over time where we can learn to at least manage the wandering mind in ways that allow us to have a sense of freedom and ease. If not in the present moment with meditation, at least in our life outside of meditation as we move through the world. So one of the things I like to think about that gives me a little bit of comfort is that so psychologists and neuroscientists are often, at, often asked the question, you know, how long has the human mind as we know it today been around? Like, has human consciousness been the same and how long has it been the same? So, of course, it's debated and, and so on and so forth. And I like to recall the fact that 30,000 years ago in the caves in France, in uh, Lascaux, in Chavot, in France, We've got these cave paintings that depict stories, like full storytelling. And so scientists and neuroscientists often say, what we see in these paintings and these drawings and sketches is a mind that likes to tell stories. It's a mind that likes to talk to itself and fantasize and reminisce. And so that I actually take comfort in that because sometimes I like to remind myself, if the mind's been wandering for about 30,000 years, for me to think it's going to get quiet with like three breaths, you know, on a meditation cushion is a little bit of high expectation for this long energetic karmic history of this consciousness that is designed to do this. So if human beings 30,000 years ago had wandering mind, then I'm going to accept that I also have wandering mind and not going to get too hung up on it. So just remember that there is a long history of this wandering and it's not going to go away anytime soon. We've been talking to ourselves for quite some time in this way. Now, in the West, this term wandering mind, sometimes we call it uh, narrativizing, 
the human mind creates narratives. Sometimes we just say it, it creates stories. Sometimes we say uh, we have internal verbalizations. There's all kinds of different words. Sometimes we say the mind talks to itself or we talk to ourselves. We daydream, right? So any of these type of phrases is, is really referring to what we call in the Dharma as the wandering mind. This insatiable appetite of the mind to think and imagine, create, aspire. This is what we're talking about. This drive that the human mind has. What I wanted to do was remind us about how the Buddha conceptualizes this because it's a little bit different in Buddhism. So in Buddhism, we have two words. The words are paired together and the words are vitaka and vikara. Vitaka is V-I-T-A-K-K-A, -K -K -A, vitaka and vikara. These are the two words the Buddha uses for thinking or wandering mind, basically, vitaka vikara. And what these words mean is the mind picks an object, vitaka, it latches onto an object, and vikara, it begins to essentially analyze it or play with it, toy with it, explore it. So the mind is involved in selecting an object, latching onto the object or the theme or the topic, and then sitting there and wondering and puzzling and inventing and creating and engaging. So in Buddhism, we call this directed thought and evaluation. The mind is constantly directing itself to particular objects and then evaluating, directing, evaluating, taking an object, exploring. This is what we would call in Western language thinking. But in Buddhism, we have Vitaka Vikara. And the reason I bring up those terms is because they're jhana factors. And eventually we'll be talking about these further in jhana. So it's just important to know that the Buddha acknowledges that the mind, and normally, you know, in the more playful terminology, we call it monkey mind, right? The mind is jumping around from branch to branch at a very high speed, this branch, this branch, this branch, and it, it's insatiable. <laughs> you know, this is a tangent, but what's interesting, I looked this up at one point. So my, <laughs> I'll tell you the whole story. So maybe 10 years ago, I, uh, my nephews were young and I, they wanted to go to the zoo. So we went to the zoo and they were really fascinated by the monkeys. And we were watching the monkeys and there were several monkeys that were moving, or not moving, swinging from branch to branch. And for the first time, I could really see how fast a monkey can move. And so I realized, oh, wandering mind, monkey mind. Like, it's almost like they grab a branch before they've even let go of the other one. It's this really rapid movement. And they, they move very rapidly, but they're also picking and choosing from branch to branch. So you can see why the Buddha called Vitaka Vikara, monkey mind. Then I found out that monkeys can actually swing from branches at 30 miles an hour, which is faster than the fastest human sprinter. So thinking Buddha, India, lots of monkeys, the monkey image would have been something they would be seeing everywhere and they could really see the craziness of how monkeys move and how fast and uh, delightful in some respect and playful these creatures are. So Vitaka Vikara, this constant movement of consciousness in the backdrop, backdrop of our cognition is the foundation of what we see in meditation. I was doing some research recently and... Uh, 
neuroscientists have gotten into the exploration of the wandering mind in mindfulness research. <laughs> so now they're they're hooking people up to electrodes and trying to make discoveries about the wandering mind, which I imagine will not be explained in the terms of monkeys, um, of course. But <laughs> one of the things, so I'm going to ask you a question and just think of an answer. They've, they say that they've done these experiments and they know how often the mind wanders. So how much of the time do you think your mind is actually wandering? Just take a guess. Like how much time in your day do you think the mind is wandering? I'll give you the answer in a second, but just think it through. So the answer is 47%. That's the answer. The mind wanders about, now this is what they're saying, is that the mind wanders about 47% of the time. And this is normative for human beings. So this was kind of disturbing when I heard about this because this is what it means as a meditator. If I'm going to sit down for a 20-minute meditation, it's going to take me, I don't know, on a good day, four or five minutes to get situated, right? That's five minutes. Then I got 10 minutes after that. And if my mind is going to be wandering half of that 10 minutes, that means a 20-minute meditation has seven minutes of meditation <laughs> and the rest is just wandering around. So this is normative. I just want you to really take this to heart that when you're sitting in meditation, if about 50% of the time your mind is elsewhere, welcome to being a human being on the cushion. That's basically what you can expect without really training it to do, do anything else. It's going to be gone 50% of the time. Totally normal. Now, the bad news, they say, is that most of the time when the mind wanders, it goes to two places. Negativity, so things that are hurting our feelings or things that we're sad about, things that we don't like. Or the mind goes into rumination, meaning it latches onto an object that we have no real interest in thinking about and then it won't let go. It just clings to something. Now, I know you've all experienced that moment where you're like ruminating on something and you just wish your mind would shut, shut the heck up. And it won't, it won't let go. It's caught on to something. Um, <laughs> I had a meditation this last week where I was having an imaginary argument with a real person, but a completely imaginary <laughs> argument with this person in my head for like 20 minutes. And my mind just wouldn't shut up. It was like, mip, 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 mip. I was being all righteous and blamey and you're, you're at fault and da, da, da. And it just wouldn't stop. Because that's what the mind does. It, it ruminates on stuff that it gets bound up in. So good to know. Half the time, we can expect the mind to be wandering. We can expect it to go to places we don't like. Totally normal. The good news, though, good news is, from a scientific exp explanation, wandering mind also produces creativity. And when the mind's wandering during the day in our activities, it's also producing relaxation. So wandering mind isn't all that bad. We want to remember that we're not trying to eradicate all of our wandering mind. That's, we're not trying to destroy <laughs> this part of our brain. We're trying to learn to use it for our benefit because it is beneficial to think about things and think about our past and ruminate on stuff. Of course, when we intend to be with the breath, we want to train the mind to be with the breath. One way to reconceptualize the wandering mind is that we're not actually trying to stop it from wandering. What we're actually trying to do is direct the wandering in a skillful way. So we're not really trying to stop it. And that, I, for me, that's been helpful because when you go to war, it's hard. And when you try to stop it, 
then there's friction. But if you think of it in terms of inviting it into a different direction, then the experience becomes a little bit different. So we're using the wandering mind. The Buddha is actually inviting us to use the natural tendency of the mind to be able to focus on something. And we're inviting the mind to focus on things that are skillful. We're inviting it to instead, instead of evaluating or latching on to an imaginary conversation, we're inviting it to be thinking about compassion and kindness. We're inviting it to be present with the in-breath and the out-breath, which can lead to insight into impermanence. So we're actually encouraging this wandering mind. It's like taking a river. We don't want to dry up the river. We just want to gently redirect it so that we can be nourished by the experience of this vitaka and vikara. So that's another way of kind of reframing this tension we have within ourselves of the mind's insatiable appetite to be elsewhere. A couple of things I did want to mention. We tend to come into relationship with wandering mind with a little bit of bias. And I wanted to just highlight this. And it's things we've talked about before, but in the context of wandering mind, I thought it'd be helpful to re- uh, just to talk about this again. So the first, the first thing is that we have this kind of myth that we inherit that meditation is about quiet. When we see pictures and we look at articles, everyone looks all blissed out. And so we, we have this idea going into meditation that good meditation means quiet mind, or good meditation means there isn't any kind of white noise in consciousness. And actually, that's not true. Noise in consciousness is not the enemy of the meditator. It's okay if the mind is active. We just want it to be active in a skillful way. So if we can look at silence as a byproduct of meditation, but not the goal, it's not our job to quiet the mind. Our job is to cultivate the heart-mind qualities, to be engaged in the activity. If we focus more on engaging in meditation rather than trying to produce a sensation, it's easier to deal with the wandering mind. We're less likely to try and wrestle it into a particular position. And similarly, we've gotten this impression from sort of pop psychology or, or the fact that meditation is so widespread now in, in popular culture that meditation is always supposed to be really fun and enjoyable and kind of like, you know, laser light show kind of thing. And great meditations might be significantly uncomfortable. Great meditations might be very noisy. They might have a lot of wandering mind. And they might be filled with feelings of anxiety or depression or contraction of the heart in a variety of different ways. So when the wandering mind wanders into a place of discomfort, Oftentimes we think, oh no, I've strayed from my path. I'm not meditating or I'm not doing something correctly. But the fact is, meditation really is, as the Buddha describes it, it's a training of the heart and mind. And it's very similar to like going to the gym or walking every day for well-being. You know, when we go to work out or to go take a walk or do something physically active, right? Some kind of training, physical training. We might not be in the mood to do it. And when we do it, it might feel tiring some days. We might not feel excited about it at all. But if I'm taking a walk and one day it feels really good in the moment and I'm looking at the sun and I'm feeling the you know fall breeze and I'm very excited, that would be a very nice walk. But if I walk on a different day 
and I'm feeling kind of depressed, it's still good cardio. It's still beneficial to do the walk, no matter how it feels in the present moment. And the reason I, I bring that up is that your present moment experience of meditation may not feel very good. It might be agitated, wandering mind, any kind of discomfort or dis-ease might occur in consciousness. That doesn't mean you're not having a fantastic meditation. You might be doing all kinds of good work with cultivating your heart-mind qualities, even though the moment-to-moment -moment experience doesn't feel so good. And that is really one of the signs of mature practice, is when you can come away from a meditation that is filled with wandering mind, but realize that the, the two and a half times you were able to bring mindfulness back is a tremendous success as a meditator. You did the work. You brought the mind back to present moment awareness. Three times of bringing a wandering mind that has a tendency to be elsewhere 50% of the time is an incredible success for a meditator. So we don't give ourselves credit for doing the actual work of meditation because we're expecting a particular outcome that we identify as meditation, good meditation. So wandering mind becomes an enemy in those cases. So just remember that a very challenging meditation, a very difficult meditation can be the most healing meditation you'll ever experience because the process of the psychological baggage that's happening, even when the mind is wandering, is significant. You're doing really good work and the fruits of that labor might show up three months from now or after you get out of the sit, but it's still good work. So remember to give yourself credit for the good work you're doing, no matter what the meditation feels like in the present moment. Something really to take into account. Now, one other sort of myth or misconception that we have going into meditation comes from this idea. Well, it comes from the idea of how we describe nirvana. So oftentimes when we describe enlightenment, we describe enlightenment as being undescribable. We say that enlightenment cannot be described. It's beyond language. It's beyond description. It is beyond the dualities of conceptualization. This is oftentimes how we talk about enlightenment. And that's all true. It's true that in nirvana, there's no thinking in, in, this, in this part of experience. And there is no distinctions or language that can describe or capture the experience. But just because that's the case doesn't mean language and thinking are not part of the path to the experience of liberation. And what I mean by that is when you say to yourself or when you imagine in your meditation, may all beings be happy, may I be free from suffering, that's a conceptualization, that's language. That is Vitaka Vikara. You're taking the object of kindness and you're evaluating it and sharing it with the world. So we use language in meditation to create a skillful attitude of heart-mind. So thinking is not preventing you from being awakened. It's how we think that prevents us from being awakened. So just because we're not thinking at the end of the path doesn't mean we don't use thinking on our way to the end goal. I know I meet a lot of students who, when they're thinking, they think that language is this barrier to liberation, that thoughts get in the way of the direct experience of truth. But the fact is the Buddha was a big fan of us using verbal fabrication, talking to ourselves, in a way that opens the heart and mind. And so it's part of the path to think skillfully. The second part of um, 
The Eightfold Path is wise intention. Sometimes it's called wise thought because we do use thinking on the path to liberation. So again, as you can see, my main take home here today is just to befriend this idea of wandering mind. And if you can approach the wandering mind with a different sense of openness and acceptance, not seeing it as an enemy, not seeing it as a barrier, but something that we're going to train and transform and encourage to engage with skillfully, then your experience of wandering mind becomes significantly different in your practice. So I want to talk about a couple things we can do with the wandering mind as far as skillful means, right? Skillful attitude towards wandering mind. So the first thing, as I said, invite yourself to change your attitudinal orientation to what the wandering mind is. That's a huge step. The second step is to understand that, so we've got like, what do we have here? We've got 20 some people in the room today, 26 people. We all have different minds. Our minds are gonna wander in a similar way. They can only go so far because they're minds. Past, future, pain, pleasure. I mean, our minds are gonna wander in similar ways, but each of us has a different life story. So each of us is gonna to have to get to know our own wandering mind. Because even though it wanders in a similar way, and you might even say that each wandering mind is obeying, say, physical laws, but would it, the content of the wandering mind for myself, my childhood is different from your childhood. My experience in life is gonna be different. My mind might wander to the past, but it's gonna wander into my past, not, not yours. <laughs> That would be that would be a strange meditation if my mind starts wandering into your future. I don't know what kind of psychic power that is. So your mind's going to wander into your past or into your future. So it's not just about noticing the wandering mind. It's about noticing where it goes. Because for you, it's going to go somewhere in your consciousness that's going to be unique. And noticing the themes and the locations and the content of your wandering mind is going to give you access to engage the wandering mind in a way that can lead to much greater freedom in your practice. Also knowing that there's no shortcut to this, we have to watch the mind and we need to see where it goes. And we just keep practicing to explore and understand, you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, it's kind of like cats, uh, when cats go out and if you have an outdoor cat, the cat could have a several mile radius, you know, that it travels in a day that it considers to be its territory. And you can hook up one of those, I don't know, iPhone trackers or whatever to your cat and you can start to see where it goes during the day. Same with the wandering mind. Our, our job is to use mindfulness to see where it goes because then we can ask the mind, why are you going there? What, what are you doing in my past when I would rather you be with the breath? So a couple things to consider in this regard. And this is kind of obvious, but I think it's helpful to remind ourselves. If your wandering mind tends to go to the past, generally speaking, it's going to the past because something is unresolved. There is something there that the mind is hung up on that either feels incomplete or there was a pain there that isn't like forgiven, right? You haven't let go of it or integrated it. And something is going on in your sit where the mind keeps going to the past, going to the past, going to the past. 
if the mind tends to go to the future, that is something different. When the mind goes to the future, it's oftentimes wanting to have a sense of control. It's oftentimes a sense of fear. It's oftentimes a sense of wanting to plan and prepare, right, for what's going to happen. So the mind is wondering and speculating and being curious about it. So these are the kind of things that we begin to engage with with wandering mind. It's not simply welcoming the wandering mind back to presence. It's also asking the mind, why do you keep why do you keep going into the past? What is there exactly that we need to work on? Why do you keep planning the next day when I'm just trying to be in this present moment? So looking for where the mind goes is a huge um, step in practice to really take note of where it's going. Another thing to know is that the motivation for the wandering mind, there isn't a singular intervention for wandering mind. The mind can also wander just because it's bored. It doesn't like to be with the breath. The breath is boring. So it's going to find something else to chew on that it finds more interesting. Usually it's a fantasy of some sort or a daydream of something. So boredom is also something we wrestle with. And the meditation teaches us to transcend boredom and to learn to enjoy the present moment more fully. So your mind might just be bored. It might just not like being with the breath. And that's like a separate intervention. In those cases, we have to learn to breathe more intentionally. We have to learn to cultivate pleasure in our meditation, bring awareness to the more positive sensations in the body. There's whole practices around this. And like I said, we'll be doing some guided meditation in the next couple weeks around this. But if you're getting bored in your meditations, there's a whole set of interventions around bringing up positive emotions, learning to use gratitude to fill the body with positivity, which then the wandering mind finds more pleasant. And over time, it enjoys being in a sea of gratitude emotions rather than fantasizing about some argument or hypothesizing about something that you have no control over. A couple other things to know about what you're seeing when the mind wanders. There's actually two layers to the wandering mind. So as we said before, the monkey mind is the mind. It is not something separate, right? The wandering mind is what the mind does while we're moving through our day. Vitaka, vikara. Choosing an object, evaluating it. You're driving to work. The mind is choosing objects, making evaluations. Choosing objects, making evaluations. This evaluative process is the white noise of human consciousness. So the monkey mind is what's actually going on. So when you invite the mind to be present, oftentimes what you're actually just seeing is just the white noise. You're seeing the habituated energy that's actually behind your life, <laughs> which can be scary if you really look at it, behind the energy of your day-to-day -day life, the mind is swinging from branch to branch constantly outside of awareness. So as soon as we invoke meditation and say, okay, I'm going to be mindful of breath in this moment, the mind's energy is like, but wait, I'm used to jumping around and playing. What we're usually seeing at the superficial level is just the energy of the, the mind, of what your mind actually is doing moment to moment and the habit patterns of that energy. Then something else happens. As the mind becomes quieter, as the background noise starts to get quiet, as you learn to enjoy present moment awareness, something else happens. 
This is where the deep psychological work of meditation really begins. As the mind gets quiet, all of a sudden you'll notice it jumps away from the present moment. It leaps into the future. It leaps into the past. You could be sitting there with breath and be like, wow, this is a really nice meditation. And then you wake up 20 minutes later and you realize you've been daydreaming. So what happens is the mind leaps away because something is drawn up from the psyche that is unpleasant. Some kind of dukkha is brought up from the heart or mind and the mind leaps away because it's like, nope, don't want to be in contact with that. When you bring the mind back, it leaps again. Noticing what happens before it leaps, that very moment before it leaps, what was triggering that, that opening can be hugely beneficial. That's where some real psychological work gets done. Because we start realizing that as the mind quiets down, the unconscious opens up and a lot of our unresolved suffering starts to trickle up to the surface and it becomes embodied in wandering mind. So the longer you're sitting on the cushion, the more what you're seeing is your psychological stuff. Your baggage is being unpacked and we're seeing it as an embodiment of wandering mind. Right when you get onto the cushion and you're just sitting down, most of what you're seeing, the wandering mind is the stress of the day, it's the agitation, it's the work and the kids and all of that other modern adult stuff we have to deal with. That's what we're seeing. As the mind gets quieter, the stuff that begins to come up into consciousness and embody wandering mind is more of our psychological, more deep-rooted energies. Learning how to see this arise and pass and learning how to, that's Vipassana. That's our meditation practice, getting in there and working with it. So working with the wandering mind is working with your psychological stuff. It's just in Western psychology, we do talk therapy about our stuff, where in Buddhism, we go down and we feel it from awareness, right? We go in there and we see it through this idea of wandering mind, quieting mind, cultivating our enlightenment factors. It's a whole different way of going about psychological healing. So the wandering mind plays a significant role in being able to learn what is really on your heart and mind day to day. What is really behind the scenes? What are we repressing, denying, pushing away? Meditation, as some uh, therapists like to say, makes the unconscious conscious. It brings the unconscious material to the surface into the light of equanimity and compassion. And if we allow that energy to come up, we can then work with it. We can then offer self-care. We can offer self-love. We can offer self-healing by getting in touch with this Vitaka Vikara, this wandering mind phenomenon. First thing to know about wandering mind is that it's normative and it happens frequently and it is the background energy of consciousness. So that when we sit, it will be the first thing that you need to learn how to manage, to deal with, to befriend. Your attitudinal orientation to wandering mind goes a long way to the energy of it. The more we resist it, the more we feel like it's preventing something from happening that's good, the more we subtly create it into an enemy, the more ferocious and distractible the mind becomes. It is definitely a tug of war. You pull the mind in, the mind pulls back. So we want to welcome the wandering mind in with a sense of equanimity and curiosity and wakefulness. 
along those lines. Taking note where the wandering mind goes is not something we're usually reminded to do, but it is in, in fact part of the training. Taking note, looking at the themes, looking at the content for where your mind goes during meditation, that can lead to huge breakthroughs in what is beneath the surface of consciousness that is longing to be healed. Wandering mind is a signal. Wandering mind is the embodiment of dukkha. And by using wandering mind, we can actually invoke healing rather than just distraction. And lastly, just remember that there's no single intervention for wandering mind. Everybody has a unique mind. Everyone has a unique mind. So getting to know your own mind, how it wanders, where it goes, then you can start customizing your practice according to how your mind tends to wander. Now, the only way to do that is to talk to your peers, talk to me, read books. There's all kinds of interventions. There's probably hundreds of interventions that Dharma teachers talk about in regards to the wandering mind. They're not all going to work because your wandering mind is going to be unique and you need to customize it to your experience. But over the next few weeks, we might be able to do it in two weeks. I want to do some um, guided meditations. Next week we'll have Doyle, but we're going to do some guided meditations on how to start your meditation and do visualization work around wandering mind, how to talk to your mind when it wanders, like literally engage the energy of that part of yourself, because that's another tool in our toolbox that we don't talk about very often. So I'm going to teach you to do some visualization work. I'm going to teach you to talk to your mind skillfully and a couple other ways to use um, mantras, visualization, and aphorisms to work with the wandering mind in ways that will be skillful for you. So that's where we're headed, my friends. A couple more things as we come to close here. I want to save some time for Meta. First of all, thank you for coming. Thanks for sharing your hearts and minds with all of us this evening. Love spending time with you. I always... Uh, like to remind folks that one of the highest forms of dharma is showing up in sangha because everybody here has benefited from your presence i certainly have and when we come together in practice it really energizes me energizes our practice it's so hard to do this work <laughs> it's so hard coming together for me is so inspiring so thank you for being here in sangha i really love uh, that you guys show up week to week this is fantastic Beyond that, much love to you all. I would love to finish with some metta. And we're right on time, which makes me even more delighted. Let's fall back into loving kindness for a few minutes. Let's plop. Take a few long, slow, deep breaths. On the exhale, really relax deeply into the body, filling it with awareness and breath energy. Ninety minutes have gone by. How does your body feel in this moment? Notice the shape and form the uprightness. Notice mood, 
How does your heart feel in this moment? Notice any fatigue that's arisen, maybe some sleepy dullness, some tiredness, fatigue. We come together in practice for our own awakening, knowing very well that our awakening means we can show up in the world with love, kindness, and compassion. That our awakening means showing up day to day, moment to moment, with joy, gratitude, and authenticity. So we always work for our own awakening, but we keep in mind that our highest aspiration is for all beings to be free. So we invite that energy into our hearts, that energy that longs for the world to be free from suffering, longs for the world to be free from harm, desires all beings to be safe, secure, loved and cared for. And with each breath, we invite that energy into being, feeling it deeply with awareness, invoking what we call loving kindness. A desire for care for all beings. We imagine this energy filling the world, touching every human heart, every plant, every animal, the earth itself. May the earth be free from suffering, be free from harm. May the plants and animals be free from suffering and free from harm. May all beings know true love, true kindness, and true happiness in this very life. May all beings know true liberation. May all beings know true freedom from suffering.
you, my friends. So lovely to see you. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.